This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I was just fascinated by these animals that were um, sleek and silver and um, changed colors and got weird, cool-looking teeth coming out of them when it came time to spawn. And then all the accoutrement that went along with it, you know, the, the um, spinners and squids and flashers and flies and, I mean, you name it. You know, getting up at four in the morning with a cup of hot chocolate with my dad and, you know, my brother. and. Um, it, the first love and the taproot for me about con conservation came from this connection through catching and touching and, and then ultimately eating these animals that uh, I love so much. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. Today, I have a great guest, someone I think everybody will enjoy listening to and, and hearing me talk with. His name is Mark Titus. How's it going, Mark? Hey, it's good. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Mark is a lifelong sportsman. He's a filmmaker, a podcaster, a conservationist, just all-around good guy who's who's taken on the plight of Bristol Bay and and salmon and anadromous fish up there in the Northwest and on multi-different levels here. He's got so many different things going, and we'll, we'll talk about those. So I'm looking forward to that. He grew up near Seattle, and he is just a, just a cool guy with a lot of different stuff going. He founded this thing called Eva's Wild, and we'll let him talk to you about that. And he's also got a production company called August Island Pictures, and he's a podcaster as well. And Mark, why don't you just tell us a little bit about some of these things, um, you know, once we get going here. But but first, just tell us, you know, you grew up near Seattle, obviously, probably the American Mecca, besides Alaska, of salmon and andradomous fish. And just tell us, you know, what the heck got you, got you going there after we first ask you, what you've been doing outside because that's how we start this show. And I almost forgot yet again, but I caught myself right there at the end. So nice go ahead grab. and tell us nice if you wouldn't mind. Man. Yeah, sure. So what I've been doing outside, I, I made a uh, solemn pledge to myself in the fall of 2020 um, in part due to COVID stress and in part just because I love it to um, get out at least one day a week. And that meant either a hike or, uh, or fishing. And so 
starting back in November, I, I've, I've been good on that, knock on wood. And so I have mostly been out uh, steelheading uh, with spay rod on the Skagit and Sock Rivers on the days that they've been open and uh, also um, searching around for sea run cutthroat trout in, in Puget Sound here in, near Seattle. And uh, that has kept me busy enough and kept my mind healthy, I think, more importantly. That's awesome. You'll have to give me a, an intro, uh, at least a better one. I've, I've caught one steelhead in my life. is about 12 inches. And then I caught one sea run cutthroat that was also about 12 inches right there around Puget Sound with a buddy. Uh, and uh, I need to do a little bit better than that, I think. Well, look, they call it uh, the sport of a thousand casts for a good reason. And uh, I am well over a thousand for this year. So, um, and I think I had one good grab at, at the second to last day of the, uh, the opening season here for, for winter steelhead anyway. And so I felt pretty damn good about that. That was good. And uh, I had one really good day out on for uh, SRCs uh, in the South Puget Sound. And uh, gosh, I lost, I lost a few, <laughs> um, caught probably a dozen. It was the best I've ever done. It was fantastic. Really fun day out there. Well, awesome. That love of wild things, wild fish is obviously a, a keystone of your life. And half the reason why we're probably more than half the reason why we're sitting here talking right now. Um, let's jump into that a bit. So, you know, you, you've got this kind of multifaceted media situation going now where you're producing films and podcasts and telling the story, but it's, it's so much more than that. You're, you're, you're doing food stuff. Let's just jump in. So you're growing up near Seattle. When was the moment that you said, okay, something's up here and I need to get involved in conservation and just kind of start us on your journey? Sure. Well, I'll go back just a step further. And, um, you know, it was hunting and fishing that, that was the reason I ended up here. My dad and mom are from Wisconsin. I was born in West Dallas, Wisconsin just outside of Milwaukee. And my dad had a good friend of his move out to Seattle. And um, his name was Joe. And Joe called my dad one day and said, the hunting and fishing is out of this world. And uh, it happened to coincide with a job offer my dad got. And so they moved and carted me out here when um, I was six months old. So really, it's all I've ever known. And uh, I, um, I started salmon fishing with my dad when I was two. Uh, legit. Uh, there's a picture actually in my first documentary, The Breach, uh, with standing next to my dad and the dog and uh, about a 30-pound king salmon. And uh, my dad had me out in um, a little kicker or a little skiff and a kicker motor out in CQ, which is out near the Washington coast, near the open ocean. And we caught this, he caught this 30-pound king. And um, I had this little Snoopy rod that he bought me. And he got the <laughs> fish up next to the boat. And I got so excited, allegedly, that I tried to harpoon the beast and threw my brand new Snoopy rig down into the <laughs> into the drink and it disappeared. But what I got instead back was a lifelong obsession, love, fascination, um, passion for wild salmon. Um, that really honestly started it. I, I was then by my dad's side. Um, mostly fishing and hunting though, uh, throughout my childhood. And, uh, we fished Puget Sound and, um, I was just fascinated by these animals that were, um, sleek and silver and, um, changed colors and got weird, cool looking teeth coming out of them when it came time to spawn. And then all the accoutrement that went along with it, you know, the, the, um, spinners and squids and flashers and flies and, I mean, you name it, you know, getting up at four in the morning with a cup of hot chocolate with my dad and, you know, my brother and um, it, it, the first love and the taproot for me about con conservation came from this connection through catching and touching and, and then ultimately eating these animals that uh, I love so much. Well, it sounds like a heck of a way to grow up. I think a lot of kids could use something like that. More kids could use to, to grow up like that. That's pretty awesome. It's yeah. It's a, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Honestly, it was a simpler time. Um, boy, I 
sound, I sound, I sound old uh, and I'm getting there, but um, it was a simpler time. You know, I mean, we just didn't have uh, all of the stresses that young people have today and, and certainly didn't have all of the devices and gadgets and things that uh, cause distraction. Um, sure. It was uh, really about finding our way in, in the, in the wild. Sure. So then let's jump ahead a little. You, in 2004, you founded this August Island Pictures, the, your filmmaking company. What, you know, those years between when you were throwing your Snoopy rod in the ocean or, or the river, and then, and then you hit August Island. I mean, there's some time in between there. What were you doing? What led to that moment? Sure. So, well, you know, I think like most of us, or many of us anyway, you know, I, I had a circuitous route to finding um, my life's calling. And, um, I kind of left fishing for a little while in pursuit of, oh, you girls and, um, you know, what I thought I wanted and needed and, um, in school and college. And, and then shortly after leaving school, I, um, I actually had started a career, uh, as an actor and, uh, I, I, go, I went to the university of Oregon in Eugene and went to their actor training program. Once I left that, I, I started um, going out on, you know, auditions and, and I got really damn close to getting a really big role once. Well, pretty big role, big enough anyway. And, um, and I didn't get it. And, and I thought, you know what, I can write, I can write a script better. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start writing. So I started learning how to teach myself how to write a screenplay by reading really good screenplays and then writing crappy ones. Um, but all during this time, I, I drifted back into my first love, which was fishing. Um, I spent uh, my college summers up in Bristol Bay uh, working in a processing plant and then uh, fishing when I could have a day off in the incredible braids up there. And then after that, I spent my 20s, um, all of my 20s in southeast Alaska as a wilderness fishing guide out of a lodge called Yes Bay Lodge in the Tongass National Forest. And so... Um, while I was figuring out this craft of screenwriting, um, I was doing the guiding in the summertime or for five months of the year anyway. And, uh, and then in the winters I would go to film school, um, at Vancouver film school, uh, north of here in BC. And, uh, and I wrote several screenplays, um, some okay, some not so okay. But in 2004, I actually wrote a screenplay called Sonaqua, the wild woman. Uh, which was about um, a uh, character-driven story in takes place in Southeast Alaska. It's a supernatural thriller about a force that awakens um, out in the wild. Imagine that. And uh, I submitted this script to the Washington State Screenplay Competition, and I ended up winning it. And so I ended up winning it. And so... Um, that ultimately <laughs> led to, um, well, I, I forgot one really important point here. In, in 2003, I, I met my wife, my now wife, and fell head over heels in love. And that uh, put a, an abrupt end to my five months of guiding a year in Alaska. Um, so 2004, come back around. Here comes August Island Pictures, formed this company um, after winning the screenplay competition and um, I went into production full time. So really, it, I was doing anything I could. Um, I was a grip, uh, which is a fancy way of saying I hauled stuff around for uh, people that knew what they were doing behind a camera and uh, cut my teeth, learned, learned how to um, listen when I needed to listen and jump in when I needed to jump in and had a really amazing uh, mentor named Jeff who um, uh, really taught me how to how to set up shots right and um, how to light things correctly and how to make things sound good and really be a stickler for excellence and um, did that for years. And, and then, um, yeah, I think that answered the August Island pictures part and, uh, and then things progressed from there. Yeah. And so you've made a handful of films at this point. Um, and, and not just the one you, you won the award for, but, uh, you, a lot, largely around salmon and conservation in the Northwest and 
why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, it sounds like it's kind of a natural connection, right? You love this stuff this whole time and you became a filmmaker and it was like, well, naturally I'd make some films about this. And particularly that, you know, the plight of anadromous fish. Um, I think we all know these fish in the lower 48 particularly are really struggling. Um, and you touched on a couple things there, you know, Bristol, Tongass, there's a couple of like the seminal environmental conservation fights in the last, you know, 20 years or so. The Tongass, for folks who don't know, largest unroaded chunk of landscape that's not wilderness protected in the United States that I'm, I think so. I think that's accurate. Um, you know, dubbed roadless, we call those, if anybody's heard the roadless rule or the, you know, roadless lands, uh, you know, tons of old growth, home to brown bears, salmon streams, all those things. And then Bristol Bay, which is obviously, you know, I think 40% of all salmon on earth are, are reliant on Bristol Bay. Um, and we had Chris Wood, uh, CEO of TU on a handful of, uh, shows ago and talked to him a little bit about that, but then you decided to make films about this. Tell us about that, you know, getting into those films. How do you, how do you pick a storyline? How do you decide, you know, people need to know this um, when you're making those films and just, you know, what, what that looked like. Sure. Um, you're doing a great job of kind of, you know, easing this along in a beautifully chronological fashion. So all of the little breadcrumbs we've laid out so far, <laughs> lead into this moment um, because at the time, so in 2011, I had been, um, I had been uh, working on the film that had won, or the script that had won this award and had optioned it um, to a second producer. It originally optioned it to a producer in Los Angeles. And, and, and at the time in 2011, I had a, a, a Northwest producer uh, who's still a, a good friend and, and a, compatriot on, on my work, but named John Comerford. Um, but, uh, we were, we were pushing really hard to put a package together to get this supernatural thriller put together with actors and get, find the financing and, uh, attach me as a director. That's really what I was pushing for. Um, and, uh, it, of course it had salmon in it as well, but I still had my, you know, primary day job, which was doing brand films and commercial type of stuff. And I was actually on an airplane heading down to Sacramento, California to shoot and direct a, uh, a brand film. I think it was for, actually it was for an ambulance outfit. And I was reading this book called Mountain in the Clouds. I'm sure some of your listeners know this book. It's a tome here in the Pacific Northwest by Bruce Brown, uh, kind of centers around the Elwha River. And uh, which is a tremendous success story here in the Northwest. But at that time in 2011, it was still, it was just about to enter into a phase of having two dams that were built illegally back at the turn of the century pulled out uh, that would restore uh, passage for the, this um, run of king salmon that uh, back in the day were legendary. They, they got over a hundred pounds. And so as I'm into the forward of this book and I'm on the plane and I'm reading this, I can't run across the name of a, an attorney that the author thanked. And it was this just absolute flash of a moment. Um, I've had only a couple of them in my life, but it was like this complete certainty, this synapse fired that said, all right, I know what you need to do. And I saw it like 10 years ahead and it was very clear to me. It's like by running across the name of this, this uh, attorney, um, I had recalled that one of our dear friends of our family, uh, Russ Bush, who was an attorney for the Elwha tribe, had stage four brain cancer at the time and didn't know how much longer he was going to make it. He had spent 40 years of his life working to pull out these dams for the tribe uh, on the Elwha River. And I knew literally in that split second, like, oh man, might be able to film him before he passes. And in fact, he might even be able to see these dams come out with his own eyes, his life's work. And I just knew with certainty that I had to get home and start filming. So that was on a Friday. Uh, Tuesday, I was home and I, I was in Russ's house and I did my first interview with him. Um, 
it was really special and really moving. And uh, I ended up doing three interviews with Russ before he passed. But not, he didn't pass before he did see those dams come out with his own eyes. He saw it in person on the site. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and so that was the impetus. Honestly, I didn't know where else, th- I didn't know where that was going to go, but that that little kernel became my first feature documentary, The Breach, uh, which um, I uh, shot in earnest in 2012, and it premiered in 2014 at the Galway International Film Festival in Ireland, and it won, it won uh, Best International Feature Documentary. And then went on to film festivals from there uh, across the U.S., and we, then we had a theatrical run in partnership with um, some of the major uh, folks that um, – have been involved with conservation for Bristol Bay as the last third of the film really was about Bristol Bay. And ultimately what it did was try to compare and contrast a situation like the Elwha River, which took 40 years, $350 million, and dozens of people and uh, tribes and organizations and NGOs and government working together in concert to try to restore versus a place like Bristol Bay which is perfect the way that it is still. It's undisturbed. It's, yeah. as you said, it's, um, for salmon, it's, it's the last of its kind on earth. And uh, so, you know, um, I, I ended up really kind of through that film, moving deeper into the waters about Bristol Bay and preserving this place that is the last of the best. And uh, that then, of course, led on to, um, to my next step of, of life. Um, after that tour of the breach. Yeah. Wow. I love epiphanies for one. Everybody could mm-hmm. use a good epiphany and say, Hey, go, go get after something in your life that means something. And I love it that, that you had one of those and that it, I, I love it even more when it's kind of takes people to ultimately what they care about anyway. Right. And, and shows yeah. them a way to, to work in that space and to live and do things in that space. So, you know, obviously you're in the lower 48, you're looking at those dams. And then was Bristol Bay, I mean, your next film, The Wild, was Bristol Bay just kind of a natural, you know, chronologically and and in time that issue came up? Or was there some other, you know, epiphany or other moment that said, hey, now you have to go to this space? Well, uh, there certainly was, Aaron. Um, (laughs) There was, first of all, when we finished The Breach, and we were taking it around the country in 2015. Things look pretty good for Bristol Bay. Um, under the Obama administration, its EPA had um, used the 404C Clean Water Act and used a preemptive measure to place a um, essentially a hold on Pebbles' uh, process and uh, the the mine Pebble being the uh, Pebble Limited Partnership yeah. and the proposed Pebble Mine, which um, would would be North America's largest open pit copper and gold mine in the headwaters of Bristol Bay's uh, massive, you know, most massive watersheds and that produce this, you know, 50, 30 to 60 million fish a year, sockeye salmon a year. Uh, another 50 million are expected again this year. And so in, in 2015, things looked actually pretty good, but then the, um, the, the Pebble Limited Partnership sued the EPA, and that brought us into uh, 2016, and um, I went through a pretty radical um, life experience on my own in that um, in the fall of 2016, it was apparent that things were going south with Pebble um, in terms of uh, possibly moving forward and this lawsuit being successful. And um, there was several things that happened in the span of four days. One one was uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Um, Next day, I found out that my grandma, uh, Dorothy, who was a soulmate to me, um, was transferred into hospice. Uh, And then the day after that, uh, Donald Trump was elected into office. Um, which in particular to this story meant that there was a all of a sudden a golden ticket for the proposed pebble mine 
that hadn't existed before. And more on that in a minute. Um, but that, that all kind of led to a, um, a real deep dive underwater for me um, with alcohol. Um, I had always been a social drinker. It's part of my culture. Everybody in my family and friends all drink. Um, I had used it medicinally my entire, or socially my whole life. But at that point, um, because of uh, an immense amount of grief, I didn't really know how to process. Um, I started drinking a lot more. And finally, went completely underwater when my mom, um, my mom nearly died in, in January of 2017 uh, due to um, complications with her cancer and chemo. And she made it. Um, in fact, she's cancer-free today. So go, mom. God love you. And um, but at the time, it was I, I went completely underwater to, to the point where I was um, I relied on alcohol all day, every day to, to get through the day. And so I finally came to a crash in the end of April after my grandma died, I went to a, uh, to her funeral in Florida. And then three days after that, I was in, in a hospital in detox and then into intensive outpatient. But all the while during this time, during this massive, um, transformation of process in life, um, I had wanted to do a reprisal of the breach and an update of what was happening in Bristol Bay. And in fact, wanted to like make a shorter version for TV. But what ended up happening was 55 days after getting out of this hospital, really uh, not giving too much away in the movie here, but um, not knowing my ass from a hole in the ground, really, I got on a plane with 12 cases of camera gear by myself and headed out to Bristol Bay, start filming a new story. And um, my friend Steve Curian had me out on his uh, commercial salmon boat, the Ava Jane. And uh, I spent the um, next um, two weeks in Bristol Bay where little miracles happened every day. Characters showed up, place to stay, wow. or a, a meal appeared where I didn't know where a meal was going to come from. And, uh, and The Wild, my next film, my latest film, just started to appear out of nowhere. And, uh, and that really was the start of it. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so epiphanies, man, you know, yeah. they come in all kinds of different, different shapes and sizes. Well, first off, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you know, human vulnerability and, and admitting the things that take us where we go is tough for people. I appreciate that you were willing to share that. It's, um, in, in looking on the good side of it, right? I mean, you are doing what you love and it took some unfortunate circumstances to get you there. But, you know, those, those are what make good storytellers, good stories. It, it's what makes it real. Um, and there's just a, I mean, even talking to you shortly here, there's just such an authenticity to, to what you're doing and a, and a passion. And I just love hearing that. And I just appreciate that you shared that with us. Um, how to get there, but absolutely. Let's jump into this this film to the degree that you can. I mean, is it is it mostly about sure. the plight of Bristol Bay? And and you know, I, I I'm always remiss if salmon comes up, and we should probably do this. We have to tell people the the story of salmon and kind of what the situation is right now because I think people go to the supermarket and they see those big fillets and they think you know salmon must be doing okay, but boy, the story is so much deeper than that. And, uh, you know, we recently had Liz Hamilton on. I don't know if you've spent any time with her um, after the announcement with uh, Representative Simpson out of Idaho. Finally, maybe getting a path to recovery in the lower 48. We're hoping it's it's at least a last-ditch effort to to try and do whatever we can. Um, just give us your take on, on the situation with Salmon, where it lies, and, and what we need to do. And I know that's a gigantic question, but... I'm sure you're well-versed in, uh, you know, kind of summarizing that, and then we'll get into your next film. Yeah, so this is great. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it on a big level like this, and that's what we attempted to do in The Breach. The Breach ultimately became a big love story for Wild Salmon, and we kind of tell the big historical context picture of it where um, 
I didn't know this when I started that project, but not that long ago in Europe, there were thriving salmon runs of Atlantic wild Atlantic salmon. In the River Thames, there was uh, uh, the last biggest recorded fish was a 90-pound Atlantic salmon before it completely was devoid of them. Wow. And really what happened was there was a wash, rinse, repeat story of human colonization from Europe then to the east coast of the United States and then clear across the United States to the west coast. And basically the same thing happened each time when human beings came in. Um, I don't think there was a, uh, a, a malevolent desire to destroy anything, but there was a, a desire to thrive. And, you know, humans, uh, you know, uh, white European Americans just saw opportunity and it seemed like limitless opportunity when I, wherever people would colonize and settle. And um, ultimately the same thing kept happening. The folks would go in and they'd say, wow, there's limitless fish. Let's fish the hell out of them. Oh, and now there's also uh, timber and there is gold and there's copper and there is uh, ranch land and there's all these things that we want and we have access to and it seems limitless. So let's just go in and get it. And in the case of salmon, you know, they were harvested to the point where, and I'm talking now about the West Coast here and the Pacific Northwest in California, but they were har harvested to the point where in Bellingham Bay here in Washington State, they would have um, giant steam donkeys or, you know, bulldozers uh, shovel mountains of sockeye salmon off back into the water because they couldn't process them fast enough and they were going to rot on the dock. Um, and so... You know, David uh, Montgomery, who appears is a professor at the University of Washington of geomorphology, and he's a fantastic speaker on salmon and has, I think, the, the, the best book on salmon that's out there. It's called King of Fish. And he talks about the five H's, um, hatcheries, uh, hydro, and I'm going to forget the five H's, of course. Um, history is, is one of them. Um, and... Um, and uh, habitat is, is, the, is the other one. So we repeat this process over and over again. Oh, harvest is the last one, sorry. Uh, so of course we you know, over harvest the fish and then we see other resources that we want in the area, say, say timber. And folks said, well, it's limitless. So let's just go in and we'll cut all the trees down on this hillside and we'll cut them all through the riverside and then back up the other hillside and it'll be fine because there's plenty of salmon. If there's not, we'll just make more salmon with hatcheries when that came online in the turn of the century-ish um, of the last century. And, um, and then this just kept getting repeated over and over and over again. Um, so the situation, it, it, the, the, the spigot got slightly turned off here in the Northwest in, in the late, you know, I don't know, probably... 70s into 80s, people started realizing, holy crap, we're we're in, get, going to be in deep trouble here, and we are. We're in deep trouble um, for all of those reasons. Um, and the most important one, I think, right now in terms of what's left, and specifically Bristol Bay, is the habitat part. In in that, um, all the other things are completely relevant and are are toxic to salmon, and will ultimately do them in, but really it's just our presence it's our presence and our infrastructure we come into an area and we do all those things we we over harvest we um, take all the other resources inside of there and you know ruin the habitat um, we create hatcheries to uh, make up for that which are in fact deleterious to wild fish um, and then um, we move on to the next thing but in order to do that we have to build infrastructures so straightening rivers polluting um, you know, all the things that we do when we create um, dense infrastructure. Bristol Bay doesn't have any of that. None of it. It's, it is pristine. It is pure. It is wild, truly wild still. The rivers are all meandering and snake-like. They look like a, you know, just like they should, like a garden hose has been going crazy yeah. acro across the delta. And, and that's why those salmon thrive there, that and the geologic miracle that Bristol Bay is that the you know glaciers that left all of the gravel there for perfect spawning grounds for sockeye salmon 
And so along comes, uh, you know, um, the proposed pebble mine. And this has been, this is an issue that's been going on since the eighties really. Um, and I will, I'll spare you the entire blow by blow, but the idea of, um, mineral extraction from there began in the eighties and it's changed hands a few times, ultimately led to its current iteration, which is this pebble limited partnership. Um, the people there have been fighting this for decades now. And, um, I'm sure some of your listeners or maybe all of your listeners know about the incredible movie Red Gold that was done in 2007 um, by Ben Knight and Travis Rummel. And that was a huge inspiration yep. to me. Um, that it was the first real spotlight shown on this issue in this place. And um, it's just haunting and gorgeous. And um, I knew that... Um, you know, coming back to how, how, how my film came about, the current film, The Wild, that uh, we're in this moment in time where under that, our former administration and the Trump administration, the Pebble Limited Partnership had a real and viable opportunity to get this done with a favorable administration. And so, you know, um, using my own story, of um, addiction and recovery, um, we and we, my creative team, uh, in particular Eric Frith, my my writing partner and, and co-creator in this, we decided to use my story as the central metaphor in this film, uh, and very specifically called it out that my addict is saying the same thing in full-blown addiction that we humans say when we're treating the rest of the earth and especially Bristol Bay in this case. And it's one small wow. little phrase. And that is this time it'll be different. Hmm. Bristol Bay, wild salmon don't have another chance to recover if we screw this yeah. one up. And that's the point of the film. Um, and so uh, we took that tack. I had the uh, opportunity to interview both the then CEO, uh, uh, Tom Collier, who has since been, well, resigned. Tech, uh, he's resigned formally, but um, he was pretty much forced out by some, some pretty amazing um, tapes that were revealed of him and the uh, president of the parent company, Ron Thiessen, of Northern Dynasty Minerals, uh, basically yeah. lying to potential investors. Um, so I was able to interview Tom Collier and also John Shively, who is now the um, operating CEO, and and get their take on the film. In fact, we let them speak more than anybody else, including me in the film, um, to to tell their side of the story, and um, and then we let our audience decide what they feel about saving the things that they love and how Bristol Bay stacks up in that in that um, that heart space for folks for our audience. Wow. Yeah, there's a couple factors every time I talk about this or think about this that seem to me that are just kind of non-starters, right? One is developing the headwaters of 40% of the salmon left on earth, just kind of in any form. It just, it just common sense would say, that's not a good idea. Don't do it. Um, two, you know, show me a good example of a hard rock mine that was cleaned up and everything's fine again. Uh, you just don't find it. Uh, there may be one. I'm not aware of it. Uh, I live in Colorado. There's a legacy mm -hmm. of lots of old hard rock mines. Most of them are little, uh, thankfully, because they don't aren't as Im impactful. But when you're talking big open pit mines like that, it's a forever thing, as far as we know. Um, those two things: a the the amount of, of salmon we're talking about, and and then. And then that we know it can't be fixed. Basically, that to me says, who who would choose that in their right mind? Logic, um, a lot of things would dictate you couldn't make that choice. Um, so that we're even considering it is is a bizarre thing to me, and um, kind of goes back to some of the other stuff you said. We've clearly gotten our priorities wrong. Um, this this one more time type of mentality. This is the last time. We'll be different this time. All of those things. Um, it's just too bad we're thinking that way. And I'm glad that 
all the different folks that have been working on it. National Wildlife Federation has worked on it. It's, it's taken an army really to get us where we're at. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I think the, the plight of the salmon in general just adds one more layer onto it, right? It's not like that salmon, is, that population of salmon is the only problem and everything else is going to be fine. They're also getting a thousand cuts in a bunch of other places. Um, so that's probably a good segue too to, to, to talking about how food can engage people in, in, in activism and advocacy for a species. I mean, I, it's hard, hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't like a good fresh piece of wild salmon. Um, and I know you've used that as a vehicle uh, to help tell these stories and to help spread awareness. Tell us about how you, how that got started and, and what you're up to with that. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to back up for half a second before I dive headlong into that. Um, no and, problem. And just to, to echo what you were saying a moment ago about all the people that it took and, and continues to take to protect Bristol Bay. Um, you're quite right. Uh, NWF has been a, a fantastic champion. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's the people of Bristol Bay, um, led by the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, that have been the, because uh, they live there. It's their home. It's their backyard. It's been, they've, they've been there for 4,000 years. They, they have led the way and, um, and, and shine the light for the rest of us. And, and there's many, many people, uh, Salmon State, uh, Stop Pebble Line now, Commercial Fisherman from Bristol Bay, Trout Unlimited, um, NWF, uh, you name it. I mean, there's, uh, gosh, NRDC. Definitely. And, and here's, yeah. here's the cool part. And, and this is, I think, especially relevant to your, your listeners, is that um, any one of us that are, spend any time out in the outdoors know that there's always friction between competing parties for a resource, you know, whether that's, um, you know, hunting or fishing. In, in our case out here in the Northwest, for the longest time, there has always been friction between commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, the tribes, uh, you know, even like between sport fishermen, between gear fishermen and fly fishermen. I mean, it goes on <laughs> and on and on yeah. and on. Yeah. And frankly, it's just, it's tired. But in the case of Bristol Bay, uh, this was a unique case where all of these disparate groups, all of them came together completely united, put politics aside, put, put their own selfish needs aside, their own, um, you know, livelihoods even aside at times, but for in service of this thing that's bigger than all of us. And it has been absolutely incredible to watch and to be a small part of. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge what you said was really profound. Yeah, um, well said. And the, Thank you. um, yeah, of course. And, and so coming back to food, um, so back in 2015, when I took my first documentary film out across the country, uh, that film was called The Breach. And um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the last third of that film focuses on Bristol Bay. And it was, I think, pretty emotional type of thing at the end of the film. And um, you know, I, I certainly put my heart into it and our team all did. And and uh, people would have an emotional reaction to it when they watched it. And at, at that time, way way back yonder in Ot 15, we would be able to actually sit in theaters together <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. you know, talk on stage afterwards. And people, the first thing people would say was, what can I do? What can I do to help? And um, honestly, I, I was a little underprepared because uh, what I had to offer was, okay, well, um, thank you. And write your congressperson, give to your favorite NGO, which is, these are prerequisites. You should do that anyways, no matter what. But folks would say, all right, I've, I've done that. What else can I do? And it took some time, but I really, with the help of um, Bristol Bay's fishing fleet and, and members of it and um, other people that are out there, other fishermen that are directly selling to people across the United States, um, came to the to the you know idea that the very best thing we can do and prescribe for people to do is to eat wild salmon from Bristol Bay. That seems a little anathema to preserving a wild resource, killing it and eating it. 
Um, but the fact is that we know Bristol Bay is fully sustainable and regenerative because of the way that it's managed. They actually learned from what happened here in the lower 48. They have a mandate in their state constitution um, with how they handle that resource. So they're required to allow for escapement, which means salmon to go through unhindered up into their spawning grounds before they put the first net in the water. So millions of fish have to get up in or, you know, to, to make babies to, to ensure the next generation before the first commercial fisherman is allowed to catch a fish. So we know it's sustainable and regenerative. Um, and then the, the second part is you're supporting this economy that is sustainable. You're, you're supporting 15,000 American jobs, $2 billion to the American economy, just in the commercial fishery alone, not to mention the other $100 million in the sport and sport fishing and tourism industry. Um, and then, you know, basically all this to say that you are using your dollar just like you use your vote. Those are the two things we have as Americans, your dollar and your vote. And you're using that dollar to say, I prefer to have this piece of wild, regenerative, delicious salmon come back to my plate time after time, year after year, more than I do a gold and copper mine up in its headwaters to make more of these things. I am using my dollar to express my will that way. So folks said, okay, that sounds good. How do I get it? What do I do with it when I get it? Now, at the time, I didn't realize there was a lot of direct-to-consumer fishermen here and there across the country, and I didn't know how to connect that up. So what came to my mind was creating a, a all-inclusive brand, a, a portal, where people could go and do all the things all at once. And so that led to this idea of a company that I called Ava's Wild, which is the word save spelled backwards. It's also the name of the boat that I was able to film the wild on, the Ava Jane, um, which was named after uh, my friend Steve's five-year-old daughter, then five-year-old daughter. And uh, really, that was the impetus, was people saying, what, what can I do and what can I do on a continual basis? So it's pretty simple, really. It's, um, we th then provide, through Ava's Wild, um, frozen, flash-frozen wild Bristol Bay sockeye that people can enjoy any time of the year, shipped to their door. And also, all of our storytelling. So the breach and the wild are able to be rented or purchased under this umbrella. Um, and then... Um, got a new endeavor and the new podcast you mentioned as well it's under this umbrella as well as well as all of the action items that people can do that are known right now from all of our partners in one central place so all the letters that you can write to all the various lawmakers um, all the petitions you can sign all the places you can donate money um, to uh, our, our NGO friends like NWF or United Tribes of Bristol Bay those are all housed in one central location under our action button. And so all of this is, yep, and it's collated such that anytime there's a transaction, this company, uh, Ava's Wild, is, um, is based on giving back. So we give back a minimum of 1% pre-tax to, um, to lift up the communities directly in Bristol Bay and keep its economy sustainable. Um, yeah, so that's where that all came about, and uh, it basically really was just a big big tent to put all the stuff under in one place, so um, so it would be there for people easily to find. Yeah, you touched on so many things I, I would love to address if we had time, but we could talk forever probably. But, you know, the killing, the killing something that you love and how that connects you to something, and, you know, I think for those who have not done that, I can understand that. I empathize with that point of view. It's, it's a stark thing to, to take a life. Yes. Um, and you know, the, the, the bigger and more similar it is to people usually impacts the way they, you know, uh, perceive it, I guess. Um, I think most people, at least from my experience, if they're killing a, a small brook trout in a mountain stream, for instance, compared to a elk, that's a very different experience. But it's also been my experience that that devoted me to the places they live more than anything else that I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And many people that I, you know, run around with my kids, my family, 
we all feel so much more connected and, and driven to protect and, and conserve and take care of these places because we derive some of our food from it. Um, and that food just seems so right when you're eating it, you know, 100%. when you can point out a mountain and say that elk was harvested there, or this fish came out of that stream. And you remember when we were there and you have memories connected to it, that is such a vastly different thing than grabbing something at the grocery store and cooking it up. It just, it, and it's, and it's so hard to say it and, and not, and, and put any less point of emphasis on it. it and it's, and it's hard to, 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 to convey that in a way that, that doesn't sound like overblown and you know what I mean? And, and, and so many people kind of take it as that who don't, who haven't done it, but I wish I could do it in a way that was, you know, beautiful enough to, to, to convey that in a way that people really understood. But in any case, I, I think this, what you're doing and, and, and this, this ability, I mean, we're really looking at a time in the future, if we don't do better, that we won't have salmon on our plates. It won't be real um, anymore. And so I think that's something that, that you're doing that's, that's making it a little bit more holistic and a little bit more real to people, right? Um, and, I, and I just commend you for that. I, I'm not articulating it probably as well as I would like, but um, that's, that's an honorable thing to do. And I, I love how your, your life has just kind of shown you that path. As, as you know, as tumultuous and, and tortuous as that path may be, have been, um, you're there for a reason. Well, l listen, I, I think it's beautiful. Thank you for saying all that. And I, um, I, I, w I guess the word that really stirs up here is, is gratitude. You know, when you talk about uh, harvesting that animal, um, it's such a different experience than going through a drive-through or, you know, putting it into a shopping cart, that feeling of gratitude for that animal's life. And as, as a man in recovery, um, in, let's see, next week, I'll have four years of, of recovery, uh, sober living and, um, uh, wouldn't trade it for anything. It's fantastic. Um, that is the thing that is the central hub of my life. Gratitude displaces fear. If you're living in gratitude for your food, for your family, for your freedom, there is no room for fear. And frankly, that then reduces the room for animosity towards other people. And, and the, it completely eliminates it. If you are living in love and gratitude, you can't hate other people. And, and honestly, that's why I think your show is so awesome. You know, there's, there's two things we talked about at the outset, food and the wild and nature. Those things are not partisan issues, man. We all need to eat. We all sense wonder and grandeur in this place that is bigger than ourselves. And when we're in that place and we're living in gratitude for that, we're all good. Well put, man. That's a, I, I love, I love hearing you say that. It's a, it's a beautiful thing you said there. And, um, we just need more of it. You know, uh, we need, we need people connecting. And I, that's what I love about wild places and wild animals and hunting and fishing is it brings people together generally. And, you know, you share a, you share salmon, you share it wild does. elk, you share these things. There's always a story to it. There's, there's, you know, almost, almost everyone can kind of tell that you care about these things a lot too, when you're sharing it. Right, whether it's somebody that knows you or not, um, and it inspires connection, and that's really important right now. You know, I think this exactly. we talked too about about discussing kind of this connecting and having having discourse and dialogue um, in this crazy time in our country. Right, you know, everybody's got a reason to be not like somebody else or different or divided, and anything we can yep. do, these stories you're telling, these, these wild places, these connection to other people are, are, are sorely needed right now. And I know, I know we wanted to talk about this and I'll, and I'll kind of give you the stage cause you're doing so much of it through all your mediums that, um, you know, just, just unpack that a touch because I think there's a lot there. Well, 
it's uh, it's deeply painful. Uh, my family's not uh, inured of it, you know. Um, I think every, I don't know about every family, but I certainly know millions of families in this country have been divided and have experienced a tremendous amount of pain and loss and suffering and alienation. Um, getting in our heads, you know, about who's right. And um, we have this saying in, in recovery that, you know, I'd, I'd rather be happy than right. And, uh, or I'd rather find peace than be right, whatever that is. And, and the, the part that's the most, you know, baffling and um, aggravating is, is that there are, there are people that are profiting off of this discord uh, in the media and, yeah. um, and elsewhere. And that, that's perhaps the most disheartening thing about this. But my feeling is that we have got to do a few things. Number one is we got we got to listen to each other. Got to shut up a minute and sit down and listen, truly listen to what each other are saying about our daily lives, about our needs, about our fears, about our heartache, um, about our um, insecurity about the future, about our um, about our shared loves. That. That's that's ultimately in, in my own family, you know, where where we are right now. So that's been forever, and and it's about sharing those things that we love, saving those things that we love, and putting aside this this headspace, this ever-ending blender, uh, never-ending blender of um, needing to come out on top, and moving that into into heart space, and living and leading with our hearts instead of our heads all the time. Um, that's the approach I take with the storytelling I do is, is a faith in people, all people that if, if we are able as creator, creative people and as uh, providers of food and of, um, providers of discourse and conversation, if we're able to maintain an open seat at the table for everybody, every single person, you may not like their politics, you may not like what they're saying today, but deep down, there is some place in that heart space, if you're willing to go there, that we've, we have a common connection because we're made of the same stuff. We are made of the same material. We all have the same DNA as a species. And, um, that, that's the place I'm at right now is to, you know, through, through the media that I'm working on through our podcast, say what you love. It's about letting anybody have a chance or finding and, and lifting up those people, um, that have a, a, something to say about saving what they love in their own lives or their own communities or their own country or their own bios uh, ecosystem, like we're, we're living here in the Northwest. Um, the only requirement is, is a love for something so deep, you'd do anything to save it. And, um, you know, that's where I'm at right now. And uh, I'm looking for other people to, you know, to join me on that. And so far, there's, it, it's, there's a lot of hunger for it, honestly. That's what I've noticed. And um, I'm going to keep going. That's beautiful. It's awesome. I, I just commend you for doing it. It's, it's a, such a good way to approach what we're dealing with right now. Um, you know, uh, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much just, just calling the other thing the other person does and immediately answering with, Oh, well, look what they do. You know, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a spat between six year olds. It's not a, it's not an adult, <laughs> very much so. smart yeah. way to, to, to solve problems and to, to tackle the biggest issues we have right now. So it's, uh, it's, I commend you that you're doing that. And, you know, I just, I'm just honored that we get to talk and that, that our paths crossed really, you know, um, let's talk about one more thing before I let you go. And, and we've talked about Bristol Bay a little bit, but what's the status right now? What can people be doing? What should we be paying attention to? I don't want to let this one go. The fight is, is we're, we're doing a lot better. 
but it's not quite over. There's still a few more steps to make sure that we never, ever see uh, this place develop. So just give you a chance to, to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Aaron, the bottom line is that there are $500 billion worth of minerals in the ground in the headwaters of Bristol Bay. Um, that's not going away, nor is human desire for wealth and power. Um, so the good news is that at this moment, uh, due to a shared love of wild that straddles parties and and political affiliations, um, the uh, U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers back in November of 2020 denied Pebble a dredge and fill permit. Pebble is appealing that decision, but at the moment, right now, they are they do not have the critical piece of paper, critical ticket that allows them to proceed nor do they frankly have an economic leg to stand on right now. They're, they're not doing well. But uh, C.1, always refer back to point one. Whether it's Pebble or whether it's the next guy in line, that desire for those minerals in the ground to make an inordinately small number of people inordinately wealthy for a, a couple generations at the expense of the people that have lived there for 4,000 years and the rest of the world losing its national and natural and worldwide treasure in the ecosystem of Bristol Bay, it, it's just not worth it. And so what we have to do in this moment, and this is what we're, uh, we are prescribing for folks when you go to avaswild.com and click on action, uh, number one is we are asking the Biden administration emphatically to uh, urge its Environmental Protection Agency and its new uh, administrator, Michael Regan, to veto the pebble mine once and for all, using its power under the 404C Clean Water Act. And in the days and months ahead, there is going to be um, legislation, there's going to be a proposal for permanent protection for Bristol Bay. And its current iteration is under the uh, name of its former governor and first lady, the Jay and Bella Hammond. National Fisheries Area. Um, these things are in the works. They're being formed. They're being formulated. Um, again, avaswild.com. Click on the action button. We keep that up to date. Anything that's going to happen in real time, we will keep all of the actions and the players involved and all the ways you can get in, you know, yourself involved and get educated on this. But those two actions are imminent. And those are things if you haven't signed on yet, uh, go ahead and do that um, on that action page at avoswild.com and uh, make your voice heard. It's it's super important because, as you said, um, we have you know this this moment, but the days ahead, uh, you know, who knows that 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 ore body's not going anywhere, and so it's really important to take the steps right now. Awesome, thank you for that. And you told us uh, avoswild.com. What other links, where, where can people find your film? You know, send us a couple more spots and I'll put these in the show notes too, but in case people don't look sure. at those links, uh, where else? Well, the, the, <laughs> as mentioned earlier, kind of the sole reason or actually the sole grounding point for creating Ava's Wild was to put everything in one place so there was no chance of getting lost. So we have so literally everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you can watch the breach. You can watch the wild there. Uh, you can have ac get access to our podcast, Save What You Love, and you can get access to fish and other really cool stuff like Rachel t-shirts and um, fantastic other uh, bits of merch to help support the cause. Nice. I, I visited it once thinking about this podcast, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to buy some fish. I'm definitely going to do my little part. Hey, and, uh, right on, man. Appreciate just, that. Actually, it's a shame. Shameless plug, you know, we, we just launched a little initiative for the summertime uh, to take care of all your summer grilling. There's a little Bristol Bay action kit that has downloads for both of the films. It's got a Tom Douglas salmon rub. It's got VR goggles with a little VR experience of Bristol Bay. <laughs> and then uh, two frozen fillets sent to your house for three months during the course of the summer, two fillets per month. And that's 59 bucks a month um, plus shipping, depending on where you live. 
wow, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna sign up for that today, and I would encourage the listeners to do that too. It's a good way to support the cause and and help the folks out there fishing, and at the same time, you know, take care of take care of this amazing place. Uh, well, I'll let Thanks, you. Aaron. I'll let you go, Mark. But I'll give you a chance to to give us a a parting shot, and then we'll we'll cross paths in the future for sure. Anything you want to leave us with? Well, let. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. I, I'm just grateful to be asked to be on the show. Um, I share so much in common with your listeners. I, I've been checking out your show, and, and um, all of the episodes you've had are, are fantastic. And, uh, you know, just to remind people that, you know, we are in this together, and there is something that we all share that's bigger than ourselves out in the wild. And uh, if we can find a way to come together with that, we, we've got to we got a real good shot at a, at a brighter future here in this country. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And I can't wait to have you on, uh, on our show on say, what you love. So we'll have to put that together. Sure thing, man. And uh, just thank you uh, for all you're doing for, for sharing your story, for being vulnerable and honest and, you know, empathetic. I think those are the, the values and the virtues that we need to, to be promoting conservation needs them. Our country needs them. Our planet needs them. Uh, just, just thank you, man. Um, you're doing awesome stuff. You're an awesome guy. And, uh, let's hope our paths cross some more. Sounds great. I sure, I certainly hope so, Aaron. Thanks again for the opportunity. All right, man. Take care. So long. We are NWF Outdoors. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.